Welcome to the Sports and Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the J. Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 57 of the Sports and Torts Podcast. God, do you believe it's been 57? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I hope everyone is enjoying this nice spring weather as much as I am. And thank you, as always, for listening and for all the great feedback that we get after each episode. Masters week was last week. was awesome. Braves off to a a solid, strong start. I mean, life is good, everybody. And we have a special guest in the Sports and Torts house today. A repeat guest of two prior podcasts, including the very second episode that we did way back when in December of 2021. Feels like just yesterday. Uh, He shared the mic that day with our very good friend Brian Karen, but now is his time to take a solo spot on the main stage. My boy, my partner in crime, the man who's been mentioned on this podcast probably more than anybody else. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, he's here, Andy Goldner. What's up? It is so good to be back. Uh, Amazing 57 episodes. the podcast is really all grows up and all grows up. <laughs> it's all grows up. It's been fun. And you're such a good sport, too, because you're always, you know, you're here during most of them. And so you'll come and have a drink with the person, have some food. You're the photographer of all the pictures we take. So I want to thank you for all your support and all that you've done in the prior 57 episodes. I'm happy to do it. And it's wonderful to see this podcast growing as it should. I also appreciate the, the long distance you traveled here today. You know, folks come from far and wide for this podcast, and, and you, my friend, walked probably 50 feet to be here. So thank you for doing that. I did, but you'll note that between the conference room and my office is the kitchen. <laughs> and as anybody who knows me knows, for me to walk past the kitchen and not stop in for food uh, is tough. Well, we did stop in for some drinks. Uh, have to, right? Um, we were drinking Breckenridge last time. We went with Eagle Rare bourbon today, which is delicious. But you're doing an interesting combo. You got a cup of coffee as well. Talk to me about this bourbon and coffee combo you went with. Yeah, so um, I have had them together in the same glass. Today they're separate. Uh, truth tree here, interest of full disclosure, I'm not feeling 100%. I got... Um, well, I was real concerned. I know we're going to talk about the Masters later, but shortly after we left the Masters, I started not feeling well. And I was very concerned that maybe I was allergic to the esteemed azaleas or something like that, which would have been catastrophic to my future. It would be terrible. But as it turns out, it's just a cold. So you're playing injured today? Look, I'm not, I'm not going to make excuses for what might be a poor performance, but I'm not at 100%. But let's be honest. My 70% is better than, say, for example, someone like Brian's 100%. There you go. Right? Didn't, didn't take long to get a nice zinger in, Adam. Uh, I'd ask you how you've been doing over the last 16 months, but frankly, I know I see you every day, talk to you every day. But for the listeners out there that enjoyed listening to you a while back and haven't heard much from you, what's been going on, man? Uh, all is well. Um, you know, family's good. Uh, as far as I know, everybody's happy, healthy, getting ready to close out the school year. Uh, very, very excited for this this brave season. Um, was telling my son Bennett uh, yesterday as we were watching the game that it's interesting that in, in essentially consecutive seasons we've taken the uh, first baseman and the catcher from the A's. Hey, yeah, if you need to restock your team, that's where you go. Right. Good, good players are out there, and the A's don't want them, so let's grab them. Murphy had the big walk-off home run this week too, man. He was due. Good to see him getting up and at him, but uh, – 
No, super excited for another Brave season. Big, big news with us, obviously the move over from perimeter area here to the battery. That was uh, turn of the year, January. Um, I think it's been great so far. I mean, talk about being over here now, the move, all that's come with it. New office couldn't be better. If you peer around the corner, you can just about see Truist Park or the TP, as it is becoming known. Um, a lot of good restaurants in the area. Dunwoody was great for, for the time we were there, but onward and upward, uh, having an office around the batteries has been great. I've enjoyed it. The, the construction process, the permit process, the moving process, not very fun. Uh, thank you, Sean Weinstock. Shout out for ushering us through all of that. But uh, Cobb County, they don't make it easy to move these days. Well, like you said, Weinstock Realty and Development, Sean Weinstock, great job uh, finding us the office space like I know he's done for lots of people. Uh, the Cobb County inspection process was was something to behold to get in here to get a law firm up and running. You would have thought that we were building nuclear weapons in here um, or conducting some sort of covert, uh, highly classified government type business. But uh, we're just trying to help injured people. As it stands, we're just trying to conduct some law business here, you know. But uh, Cobb County threw up a few barriers. We overcame, and here we are. So I'm really enjoying the location to the restaurants of the Battery. Um, it's always good to, to get a new, fresh crop, a place to eat. But the Battery, my goodness, you can go there week after week after week and find a different place. Garden and Gun is kind of our spot, man. Which is ironic because I'm neither a gardener nor a gun owner. But yet... Boy, they make a good fried chicken sandwich. And uh, the lobster roll you enjoy, and it's they, they just do a really good job. It's not a huge place, so you feel it's kind of an intimate setting. Fox Brothers we hit all the time. I mean, you can just go on and on and on and on. Great places over there. Yeah, so I mentioned the last time you were here was with Brian. Um, looking back, I mean, do you think that having him there helped the episode? Did it hurt the episode? Did it help your performance now that you're solo? Like, what, like what, what's going through your yeah, mind? Yeah, Brian's a great friend of ours, and I don't I don't want to use terms like anchor and dead weight, um, and so I won't use those terms. What was the question? Well, what do you th- how do you think the, the second episode is going to be? I mean, you know, we always hear about these movies where they have the, the sequel yeah. or, or, well, actually, this is your third one, because yeah. you were, as I yeah. think about it, you were on the, the uh, Paralegal podcast we did as well, discussion, so this is actually your third so trilogy, uh, you know, sequel, <laughs> where's yeah. this going to fall? Yeah, um, I think now that I'm unshackled from Brian, I can really uh, spread my wings and, and, and start flying on this podcast. You know, he did the best he could. He did the best he could. But at the end of the day, if you're a double A player, it's tough to make it in the major leagues. So are you thinking this is going to be more like Godfather 2 and 3 or more like Dumb and Dumber or... Uh you know, the major league ones, which we don't even speak about, they did more than one. Oh, boy, there have been some bad sequels, haven't there? I'm hoping to, to rise above what is historically dangerous territory when you try to um, take perfection like Fletch and you come out with Fletch Lives, right? Chevy Chase back in the day, perfection. That movie is perfection. They, you know, hang over the first one to hang over three. The, the, the his, history is dotted with roadkill of sequels. Well, this won't be one of them. There's no question. This this is going to be more like, you know, back to the future as they kind of continue to have good, good, good movies. Um, I'm not a star Wars Lord of the ring guy. I don't know if you are, nor am I, um, but I'm told that those were very good kind of like line of movies. So take your word for it. That's where we're going to go with it. But we're here today, week after masters. And that's where I want to spend some time talking with, because both you and I share a passion for the tournament, a passion for Augusta, you know, Thursday morning, we're eating up every bit of bandwidth in this office streaming on masters.org. So um, 
we were lucky enough to go together this year on, on Tuesday practice round, which I would argue is the best day of the week to go. Um, people like going to real rounds. I like practice rounds. So um, I don't know. What's the, what's kind of like your your looking back, Masters 2023? What'd you think? Yeah, well, I want to bring it a few years uh, before 2023 and, and tip the cap to, uh, I guess he was my step-grandfather, but I never considered him that way. He was always a grandfather. But um, Harry Popkin who has a long history in Georgia in, in various uh, capacities. Uh, some people may know him as one of the co-founders of Blue Star um, Camps. But he spent a, a large part of his youth in Augusta and actually served as a crossing guard um, for the tournament in its infancy and ended up getting badges uh, after that. And I remember going over to uh, his apartment he shared with my grandmother during master's week when I was a little kid and he was glued to the TV and he was wearing a master's shirt and all he wanted to talk about was the masters and I didn't understand it. And then as I grew in my appreciation, although not skill uh, for golf um, and, and took pride in the tournament being from Georgia or in Georgia, I started to understand the magic of the masters and what my grandfather you know, was, was doing all those years we'd go over there and he was glued to the TV. So, um, that was kind of my early introduction to it, but have been fortunate as have, have you in recent years to attend some tournament rounds and some practice rounds. Um, just a spectacular event, spectacular course. So that's awesome. And it, it's so true. I mean, like my, my daughters, Belle and Graham, like they're watching on Sunday afternoon, which, you know, for a kid to watch golf, like it's hard to sit there and watch it, but like the masters is just different. And it does carry from generation to generation. Being in our backyard, we're just so spoiled that we can you can we can run up there. But this year, um, we went on Tuesday. Moses Kim, huge shout out to Moses. Um, he he goes every year. It's part of his thing. He invited us to go. He actually couldn't go with us um, because he was doing the work that needed to be done. He was in trial that week. So. Um, if you want to talk about, about Moses for a second, just like how awesome he is, how he goes every year, and this year he happened to be in trial, so we went and he couldn't go, at least on Tuesday. So it's hard to talk about Mo- – Moses is more a movement than a man. He, he is one of the most genuinely nice uh, people that you'll ever meet. Truly nobody uh, has a bad thing to say about Moses. Very gifted uh, medical malpractice plaintiff's lawyer. Uh, passionate for golf, have played some rounds with him as I have with you. And Moses likes to go to the Tuesday practice rounds every year. And as you said, he invited us to go, and it, it turned out he could not go because he was in a very, very substantial medical malpractice trial. So me, you, his friend Harry, who came in from Los Angeles, who you had met one time before, I had not met. Right. Um, and, and Parker, uh, a lawyer over at Beasley Island, the four of us roll up. And poor Moses is like on the text chain and he's preparing for trial. But um, what was so cool, I thought, amongst a lot of things, is that Tuesday was when he was getting the was closing arguments for the day before. Drew was deliberating. And uh, you can't bring your phones in, of course, to the to the masters. And so as we were leaving at about five, six o'clock, as we're walking to the car, we're just hoping that all of our phones are just going to be buzzing with a great result that he got from the jury. Turns out that verdict came the next day on Wednesday. But um yeah, I mean, just just great stuff. He got a successful verdict, and it was awesome. Um, Amazing verdict. We went up on Monday. You were kind enough to host us at Oconee, so I know that, you know, it, it, it was a very neat way to do it. So talk about kind of our itinerary, so to speak. So so we went up to Lake Oconee on, uh, on Monday, and uh, 
we we did a little a little cocktail cruise over to the Ritz at Lake Oconee, which is an amazing property. Uh, managed to to dock the boat there without doing a whole lot of damage to it. I don't think. Um, sat up at Gabby's for a while, which was a lot of fun. And then, uh, boy, it was dark when we when we went back to the house. And uh, I, I'm not sure that I'd ever uh, is 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 do you say boated, uh, captained a boat, driven a boat, whatever it did you successfully navigated? We we navigated back to the house with very little problem. Did not strike anything in the lake on the way, but um, Lake Oconee dark at night. Not a lot of lights. So what I'll say is uh, you introduced the term humble brag on this podcast back in episode two, which funny has caught on. People will talk about it, bring about it. And uh, I set you up for the humble brag about the Ritz and the boat and all that kind of stuff. But um, good for you for add, adding that term into the podcast. But um, <laughs> Thank you. What, what all that did for us in, in, in terms of being a great time, we woke up Wednesday morning or Tuesday, excuse me, Tuesday morning and we're halfway there. Um, which is awesome. So talk about the drive-in. Um, getting into Augusta wasn't great traffic-wise, but... So if, if you leave from Atlanta, as we have had to do in years past, and it, it's a 4 a.m. wake-up uh, in the 4 o'clock hour to get there, you know, when the gates open, with the obligatory stop-off at Dunkin' Donuts for a coffee or something, that's, a, that's tough. Now you rally because it's the Masters, and you're thrilled to be there. You walk onto the grounds, and you see the leaderboard and you see the the putting green in the first hole all your fatigue goes away but by staying at a coney which is halfway or, or more more than halfway to augusta from atlanta it allows you to sleep in leave later um so the drive from a coney to augusta was maybe an hour and 10 minutes when we got off at the highway the good people uh in the city of augusta had had, had some traffic challenges that morning which is wild because augusta and the master does everything right but they did not do this traffic plan right so we ended up spending more time kind of on washington road in the surrounding areas than it took us to get get from from oconee but once we got there and walked in of course as you said all that kind of stress goes out the way and uh parker who we were with said that you know he had never seen tiger in person that was like on his list of things to make sure that we did that day and wouldn't you know it the first damn group we walked upon was tiger Freddie Couples and Justin Thomas. Unbelievable to see those those guys um, live. Um, and if you think about it, it's interesting. The three of them are sort of in very different stages of life, right? Like Freddie, who is sort of eternally young and has a classic, timeless, effortless swing, which is why he made the cut. And you almost wonder, is he going to be in contention one of these years? Um, obviously, he's on the Champions Tour and, and – uh, his best golf days are behind him. Tiger's in the middle, right? I mean, he, he clearly can still win a major when his leg holds up. But at, uh, I believe he's 47 or going to turn 47 this year and clearly had some injury issues. You know, he he is he's trending towards the, the Freddie older age now. And then, of course, Justin Thomas is in the prime of his career. So it's just interesting that the three of them are so close, such good friends, but at very different stages. Yeah, and and we got some pro tips from one of the – do you call them ushers? I don't even know what you call the people that kind of – I want to make sure I call them the right name so right. that Ridley doesn't you know get mad at me for referring to something they're not. But regardless, uh, the volunteers perhaps. Right. Um, they said, hey, they're about to tee off on 7 – and they told us exactly where to stand so that we would see where their their tee shots landed. And by God, Tiger outdrove both of them. He was he was the furthest one down there. And really, really neat watching him you know, go about his business. But I'm always fascinated with the practice round pairings. 
like who decides to play with who. Um, I can't get enough of that. Well, it's it's fascinating. I, I found this year particularly interesting for a few reasons. One, it was you know the South American contingent and the Spanish contingent came through together. Um, you sort of always expect Tiger and Justin Thomas to be practicing together because they're such good friends. But what stood out to me was that Patrick Reed was playing by himself. That and then the, all the live guys were playing together. And the live guys. You know, it was painfully obvious, at least on Tuesday, there was a divide. Patrick Reed, no friends. We, we, we know that to be true, playing by himself. We've been saying that for years. Um, but you had Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, um, Varner, and Gooch playing together. All live guys. And, you know, for, for that group to include two past champions, Augusta celebrates its champions. Sure. They were iced, man. It was, it was a cold response to those dudes. Um, well, as to the Patrick Reed thing, of course, as you know, uh, a Masters champion. And imagine Augusta, more than probably any other professional tournament, celebrates amateurs with the crow's nest and all the reasons that they celebrate amateurs. And so there are some very accomplished amateur golfers there, uh, and not one of them wanted to play a practice round with Patrick Reed. Um, that's fascinating to me. You know, and as to the live thing, I think the next couple of years are going to be fascinating. Uh, is the live golf movement and their tour, if you can call it that, you know, is that going to survive um, once the contracts are over for the initial folks that that were paid handsomely to to play? You know, is live a real thing? And if it is, uh, how are the PGA Tour and live going to coexist? Yeah, I don't know. Um I think that the Masters did a good job this week of like letting them all kind of be together. We heard some stories, the Masters dinner, uh, champions dinner about kind of some, you know, Phil wasn't really engaging as much and but whatever, but uh, it's awkward, man. I mean, it, it can't help but be, I found myself on Saturday and Sunday rooting very hard for Rom, very hard for the PGA tour guys. Um, just for that very reason. I used to love Kepka. Who doesn't love Kepka? Right. But that's where I was on Sunday. I was there as well. And I, and I think, one of the primary struggles people are having with the live golfers, and you and I discussed this, Harold Varner cut right through it because uh, he was completely honest about why he moved over to live. But one of the th problems people are having with the live golfers is that they're trying to say they went over there to grow the game and that they were so dissatisfied with the PGA tour that they had to leave. Well, Varner, uh, at least his credit said, no, I went for the money. And you got to respect it. No one begrudges that they're doing it when you're saying, here's a hundred million or 200 million guaranteed just to come over here for four or five, six years, you know, go do it, but don't, don't badmouth the PGA tour on your way out. You got to own it. You got to own the reason why. And, and any, any of us in that same situation might've done the same darn thing and you, you secure generational wealth for your family. But like you said, just be honest about it. Take, take your money, go play live but don't trash the tour on your way out, which I think was Freddie Couples, his main point when he was, you know, famously uh, last week talking about Phil and some other guys in less than, you know, stellar terms. That was exactly his point was, look, go take your money, go do what you want to do, but don't trash my tour on the way out. Exactly. So any discussion on attending the Masters has to include the food you eat, has to include going to the merchandise um, yeah. shop, which, of course, we did all of the above. Yeah. But um, as we're driving in, we're all talking about strategy for food, right? You got to attack it in a certain way. 
And um, my initial strategy was I was going to start off with a biscuit and a cup of coffee. Um, I didn't end up going that direction for a couple of reasons. Once you get in there, it's really hard to say no to the sandwiches and it's super hard to say no to the beers. So my strategy was aborted the minute I walked in, but talk about the food that you ate, talk about what your strategy was and all that goes with it. You know, like Mike Tyson famously said, everybody has a strategy until they get punched in the face. Um, Josh, I'm going to be honest with you and your ever expanding group of listeners. I really bogeyed the food situation at this masters, if not double bogeyed. I was very disappointed in my performance when I walked, uh, off of the hollowed grounds at Augusta. I, I had, uh, dreams of a, of a real, uh, sense of accomplishment when I left there food wise. And, you know, I managed to take down an egg salad, uh, a barbecue sandwich, the masters club and a blueberry muffin. Now, I've thought long and hard about this because I was so displeased with my food performance. And I, what I was doing with that blueberry muffin, I have no idea. I know you're doing the blueberry muffin. I had one too. They're really good. They were. I, I remember walking in that green space up to um, the ninth green, and you're just taking this muffin, walking, and just throwing it in your mouth. And crumbs, man, crumbs are just dropping out of every bite you take. And I'm just waiting for a for someone in a green jacket to throw us both off the property for you just dropping these blueberry crumbs after every step you took. So what you're saying is not wrong, and I wish it was. Uh, what I did though is I had a strategy to that as well. The larger pieces of muffin that that kind of fell off like shrapnel, I did pick up because I respect the course. The tiny crumbs that sort of came off, I had to let those go. Now, fortunately, most of it was in a crossway and. I watched the entirety of the Masters. I don't think that my blueberry muffin crumbs interfered with play in any way, although we can't rule that out. It made me very nervous. It made me very nervous. When you see a pine needle out of, out of place, right. it gets fixed. Blueberry muffin crumbs, mm -hmm. I was nervous the entire time. Yeah, no. Um, it, it was any chance I, I may have had of being asked to join the club. You lost it. Probably lost with, with the sloppy muffins. But let me say this. Um, in all the years I've gone, and, and I've commented about this a, a couple of times to different people, and it's really remarkable, I, I don't think I've ever seen a piece of trash on the ground, and I know that I've never seen anybody litter. And to me, when you have the tens of thousands of people uh, a day going there, it, it speaks to the reverence that people – I mean, really and truly, I mean, it, it, it would sort of be like discarding a um, – sandwich wrapper in the Vatican or at St. Peter's Basilica. People don't do it. You're exactly right. The respect that the patrons have for that place yeah. is unbelievable. People, unbelievable. Are, people are actually talking in a different tone. The level of their voice is a little bit lower. The clapping, the cheering is at a different level. It's just it's just a matter of respect that you see nowhere else. I have not seen a piece of trash there. So my strategy, and this was adopted uh, from Harry, so cr props to him, was uh, one sandwich for every two beers. That served several purposes, but that was the strategy we went. Now, if I told you the different sandwiches I ate, it'd give away how many beers I drank, which right. probably don't want to do that. But I can say that anybody who wants to come to my house and see how many, you know, brand new Masters plastic cups I have, they can do the math. You had an impressive array of cups <laughs> when we left. Uh, barbecue was my favorite, which I was surprised about that. Uh, but barbecue is my favorite. I think that Parker said that the same. Do you have one that... <sighs> you know, I... I, the egg salad remains my favorite. But had I had to do it over again, and, and, and God willing, next year I, I will, um, I'm going to substitute out the blueberry muffin uh, for the pimento cheese. 
Yeah, we've had it now. No need to go back. Um, the merch stand was also a big discussion about when in the day you're yeah. going to do it. That's always a strategy call. Um, I think that you and Parker went earlier on and me and Harry went later. Um, the also discussion is how much money they pull in from that place. Unbelievable. There was a, a, a report that I read. It's on the internet. It has to be true, right? Right. Um, sales this week were $70 million of merchandise. Yep. That, for you math majors out there, that's $10 million a day. Um, 16, no, was it $1,600 a minute, something like that, and $277 a second, something crazy like that. It's nuts. They do a good job collecting money there. Uh, it, it is, look, everybody wants the merchandise. Obviously, you can't get it online um, unless you're dealing with some shady reseller. But, of course, the Masters and Augusta National don't have a, a website you can buy clothes from. And so it's a truly premium uh, sort of get when you can get a quarter zip or a, uh, a polo shirt or a uh, Tervis with the Masters patch in there. Yeah, I mean, right now you're wearing the Masters shirt. You got the, the Masters tumbler. I'm wearing my, you, you get in there, you just get overwhelmed by all the purchases. Um, Masters shoes, have they gotten the shoe game yet? I, I have not seen those, but uh, it's possible I've missed them. There may be there. I'm thinking if they were making shoes, you wouldn't have missed it. That's probably true. Can we take a little, uh, take the fork in the road, talk about shoes for a minute? Of course. Because anytime. I mean, anytime. anytime yeah. uh, how do you describe your shoe habit these days? Because I've been watching it. Kind Uncontrolled. Of <laughs> yeah. That's how I would describe it. Um, uh, yeah. It, it's, well, I'll put it to you this way. Um, Amanda and I are, are, are likely to have our uh, master bathroom redone. And the contractor started asking me all these questions that I'm sure were highly relevant. I stopped in mid sentence and I said, Jeff, I said, before we talk about any of that, we need to talk about the shoe shelving, which was, I think both perplexing and concerning to him that my laser focus was on shoes. Well, I think that people want to hear, I mean, yeah. in, in today's day and age, shoe wear has got a little more casual to work. Yeah. Um, you can wear the Nikes, you can wear, uh, any sort of stuff. Um, where are you at right now? Uh, so I agree, you know, when we started practicing law, uh, many years ago, you know, it was the full somewhat uncomfortable loafer with the wooden sole that people could hear you half a city block away coming down the hall because you're clunking like a pilgrim. Uh, thankfully it, it's transitioned to, to more casual wear the Peter Millar Apollo Peter Millar, that's what I was trying. Yeah, to that that's for 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 your listeners looking to transition away from a more uh, business shoe, but yet aren't comfortable coming into the office in something like an Air Max. I can show them something in along the Peter Millar Apollo line. Very comfortable, sort of a tennis shoe, but yet pulls off the dress shoe look nicely. <laughs> you, you nailed it, man. I'm, I mean, I'm wearing those two. Uh, the Nike Air Max, we talk a lot about. The Jordans, you, great can't, you can't go wrong. I love how we just went a little shoe direction for, for no good reason. So back Josh, to the, I can talk shoes ba back anytime. To, back to the tournament. Um, we sat right between 16 and 17, which is a great place to sit because you're watching them come in on 16, and then you have the up-close and personal shot of them teeing off on 17. As many times I've seen these professionals hit driver, it blows my mind every single time. Um, well, and as to that location, it is an unbelievable location. It's also about where we were sitting was about 20 yards from where the trees fell, uh, the pine trees. 
we were not there that day, but they fell right off 17 T box. I got lots of questions from people about the liability aspect of that. Yeah. And, and my stock answer was good luck suing Augusta national Richmond County. Uh, my law firm takes serious injury cases and wrongful death cases, certainly statewide, if not all over the Southeast. The law offices of Andrew Goldner will not be bringing suit against Augusta National but in, under any circumstances. In, in true Augusta form, of course, that tree missed everybody, right? I mean, <laughs> right, right. The, but Bobby Jones uh, and, and the ghosts of Augusta Pass seem to move people out of the way just in time. But, but no, that, so that location, again, to um, give Moses a tip of the cap, between 16 Green and 17 T is basically Moses Land. Everybody knows him there. Uh, there's, a, um, there's a guy that works the 17 T box, very, very tall guy. His name's Todd. Uh, he's been working at the Masters for about 20 years. I think he's retired, comes up there and works the 17T every year. We've gotten to know him a little bit through Moses. Fantastic place to watch the practice round because you can watch uh, the balls being skipped into 16 green. And then, of course, when they hit their actual practice shots in the 16 green, you stand up, turn around when they walk up, and you're 10 feet from their tee shots on 17T. But to your point, the sound that the ball makes when leaving the the club head of a Rory, a John Rahm, and the like, it's amazing that the ball can survive that sort of impact. I've been I've gone to the driving range the last couple of days because I'm inspired by how easy they make it look, and it just it's just not. It's just not. You, you should be able to do it. I can't. They can. Good for them. Uh, that's why we love it so much. So watching watching it, I watched as much of it as I could as did you. Didn't love the set, the Saturday viewing. I like waking up to it, but you don't want to see the weather like that. It was clearly half the field was clearly impacted by it. Seeing Tiger limping around in his hoodie in the rain, like I just don't need that image. No, but we but we got the tournament finished on time on Sunday, which was a credit to to the Masters crew. They do well, as John Rom said in his um, speech when he got the the green jacket. He in one of the first groups of people he thanked were the maintenance crew at Augusta uh, National, which I thought was a touch of class uh, by him. In addition, he called out his caddy, which uh, I thought was also a wonderful sentiment. But they did an amazing job keeping that course playable. The weather for a lot of it was terrible. Um, but but tip of your cap to the National for, for completing the tournament on Sunday and not bleeding over to Monday. So I thought Rahm is a worthy champion. I thought that he was obviously one of the top three favorites coming in. I was rooting for Rory, but I'm happy with Rahm. Um, you know, to four-putt on that first green, basically give give the field a two-stroke head start and still win by four, amazing. I, I want to ask you this question. The final group, obviously, Saturday and Sunday, was Rahm and Kepka. We already kind of discussed the live versus PGA, good versus evil. Uh, my cousin Blair Lieburn, who texted me, and he said it felt like Bama versus Georgia, Rom being Georgia and um, Kepka being Bama, and everybody rooting for Georgia for the reasons that, that we know. Um, as somebody who's been always in the middle of Georgia versus Bama talk, how, what do you think about that comparison? I don't like it, um, <laughs> but I have a specific reason why. Um, first of all, and I obviously come from a biased perspective here, but. I have always found Alabama fans, by and large, to be respectful, appreciative of the game, and the Alabama fans that I associated with were very complimentary of Georgia when Georgia won the national title uh, two years ago, and obviously to the extent that you can be talk about the game that occurred a few months ago against T TCU as a game 
very complimentary of Georgia for that game. Um, people seem to dislike Alabama solely because of success. There really isn't – you can't point to recurring recruiting violations or any real problems in the program. It's just sort of like the Yankees. Hey, you've won a bunch. It's someone else's turn. I don't think the same can be said for Liv. You, you, without getting too deep into the political hole here, you have a Saudi-backed entity, which, again, this to keep the podcast lighthearted, we're not going to go back to review the, since September 11, 2001, and, and before that and beyond. You struck a nerve here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's no question. Uh, Saudi Arabia is, certainly doesn't have clean hands, as we would say in the law. Uh, and I think there is a level of discomfort and sort of, um, sort of like you get you get a little squeamish when you see these guys like Mickelson and others taking a hundred million dollars from the Saudi Arabian Kingdom to sort of what's been calling sport wash their country's culture. So to tie it in, um, to liken Alabama to like Brooks Kepka and the Live Tour, I think that's a bit of a stretch. I, I see what they were going for. I was going to ask you how you and the Goldner men and Alabama nations handling Georgia being back-to-back champions, but I think I know. I think I think we I think we we can tell by that answer that you're a little edgy about. That. I think I've been very clear that I love Georgia football. Having gone to law school there, I've been to a zillion games. I think it's wonderful what uh, what Kirby has has done. Nick Nick taught him well. Very good. To tie it all up with the, with Masters and move on to some law stuff. Uh, love seeing that amateur Sam Bennett out there. You know, the term is known for its amateurs. Um, Spieth making the charge on Sunday. It's always good to see him up there. Um, like I said, Rory was the one person that I missed having have in the mix. But at the end of the day, Rom's a champion. I'm good with. I'm good with it. Now, Rom, by all accounts, seems to be a good guy. I actually like his fiery um, demeanor on the course. Love him bringing the text message that he got from Zach Ertz to light cool. about the four putting. Tell people about that. If you haven't, haven't read that story. So, so Rom told a story as he was getting his green jacket and, and uh, out on the course, which is of course the second time they put the green jacket on after Butler cabin. And uh, he said that as he was going to the first tee or the putting green, right before the first round, Zach Ertz, who's the, you know, obviously future hall of famer tight end uh, from the NFL texted him and i guess they play golf together somewhat regularly and said something to the effect of that first green looks like a walk in the park it's going to be super easy for you and then rom goes out and four putts it and so during his uh champion speech rom was calling out Ertz and said you know don't ever do that again right uh, so i i rom seems to have a sense of humor i loved his speech um but you know far be it for me to give rory uh, golf advice, but he's the most talented player in the world. And, and other than Tiger, he may actually be the most talented golfer that, that we've ever seen in our adult lifetime. I wonder what would happen with Rory if next year he came to Augusta on Thursday and didn't play a practice round, uh, didn't do all the, the interviews that are required, didn't have to think about Monday through Wednesday night, about the fact he hasn't won a Masters. That's the one trophy missing in his case. With the talent that he has, and if you listen to PGA Tour players and you ask him who's the best golfer in the world, they say it's Rory. Nine out of ten golfers say it's Rory. So I just wonder 
if he sh- if he basically do did w- what you and I do and just grip it and rip it. Yeah, and, and I'd, I'd add likable to that list of things too. And 100%. what you're what you're saying is exactly right. It's just it's winning that last one seems very difficult for him. He blew up on the back nine a couple of years ago, and and the, the the demons are there, right? It's like I tell Isabella when she goes back and serve. Don't think about it. Grab it and serve it, and just be done. Roll, rolling hot Thursday morning like you and I do for the eight o'clock tea time when we're playing our local municipal course, and just go. So. I like it. Given the expansion of your podcast, I think there's a better than average chance that Rory will actually listen to this episode. Oh, for sure. And so if he's listening, what I would say is, Rory, we're all rooting for you. And I'm going to tell you what your agent, your wife, your swing coach, your father who trains you and other PGA Tour professionals are too scared to tell you. And that is, dude, show up Wednesday night, rent your house, go to sleep. Come Thursday morning, hit some balls on the range, put the quarter in the machine, get the bucket of balls out. LFG. And then LFG, buddy. Because yep. here, here's my one question I want to leave you with, Rory. How could it get worse? You're not going to do worse than you have been recently. That's tough, isn't it? So the it? definition of insanity is what? Doing the same thing over again, expecting different results. You're welcome, Rory. <laughs> well, on that, um, let's transition a little bit because you're a man of many talents, the law being one of them. Last time we spoke a lot more like kind of firm setup, marketing, your approach to, to, to that kind of stuff. But let's let's talk more about like the cases that you're handling, the way you go about them. You're, you know, you do a great job. Your successes are documented from here to the end of time. Um, trucking cases like you're working on, auto cases, child injury, daycare stuff, dog bites, like you name it. So I don't have any sort of uh, uh, outline of which direction to go. I know the child injury stuff and daycare stuff is a lot what you're doing right now. But talk about your caseload, what you're doing, things like that. Yeah, so um – I've spent my career on the plaintiff side doing all sorts of serious injury and wrongful death cases. Um, the auto and, and trucking and premises cases sort of speak for themselves. But over the last like 10 years, um, I've really developed a, a niche with child injury uh, and a lot of child injury in addition to auto and trucking wrecks in, involves um, kids that are badly injured by, by dog attacks. And then increasingly at daycare and, uh, you know, you've worked on a bunch of daycare cases with me and probably half of, of my caseload right now uh, would would be comprised of daycare cases. And, and some lawyers recently asked me um, to what do I attribute the rise of, of, of daycare cases? And I really don't know. Uh, if I had to guess, um, I, I think the rise is related to uh, the use of cell phones. Um, I think that there is an epidemic in general in society. One need only look at the next restaurant you go to and see what families and couples are actually talking to each other versus on their phones. But it manifests itself in a particularly concerning way when you have one or two employees that are charged with the responsibility of supervising young kids and they're on their phones a lot. And you can't be looking down at your phone for a couple minutes and then also in charge of a three-year-old. And the way we know that now is because all these classrooms, or most, have security cameras. They should have security cameras. And so if the facility does what's right, which is keep that footage, it's showing the teacher, the supervisor, on her phone when she should be watching the children. It should show that. We've, we've run into two problems. Uh, the first is that, well, let me mention the second because that's the easier one. The second is that we've, talk to daycare employees who have admitted that some of their co-employees know where the 
so-called dark spots are in the room where the cameras don't reach and they'll go there and use their phones. And so the cameras cannot pick up on them. Meaning these aren't oscillating cameras. They're shooting a still area. Or even if they are oscillating, they don't necessarily capture every inch of the room. And some of the teachers know where to go to not be caught on camera using their phones. The, the first and most common issue we've run into, uh, is that they, they say that the cameras aren't working or weren't working that day. Yeah, every time. Every time. They say, well, we had a camera system, but it's not working anymore. And, and, and we asked them a deposition, well, why didn't you replace it? Well, it's not legally required, which is true. We can talk about that in a minute. But they, the daycare folks never have um, a good answer to this question, which is, if you're accepting tens of thousands of dollars a month to care for people's children, uh, why can you not spend $1,500 one time at Costco uh, to, to get an eight camera security system that will record to a hard drive so that if something happens and it's not your fault, you've got a recording that shows that you did nothing wrong. Well, boy, that sounds great. If I'm the insurance company in the daycare, if you're confident in what you're doing, record the activity, save it for a week on a hard drive. And then if something happens, you're not at fault. That question is gold, right? There's, there's no good answer to it. It puts them in a box. It, it, it illustrates the exact point that you're trying to make. And I'd go one more thing. The other, other questions I've heard you ask before is, where they choose to point their cameras. Right. There always seems to be a camera up front by where the money's held or by where the employees got important things, but not where the children are, not in the playgrounds, but where the money is, like, right. by God, that's always being captured. Well, and what does that tell you? Uh, you know, so it's interesting. The, the Georgia has an agency called the Department of Early Care and Learning. Within that agency, there's a group called Bright, starts with a B, Bright from the start, and they license and regulate daycares in Georgia. They also put out regulations that daycares are supposed to operate by within those regulations. It's stated plain as day that playgrounds are, and I'm going to paraphrase here, the area of the premises where most injuries occur or the most dangerous area of a playground, or they use words to that effect. So it would seem to me that if that's the case, you would want to be your most vigilant there, including having a video camera there. Um, and it's shocking the amount of daycares that don't have cameras at all, or the lion's share of the ones that do, they tell us that the cameras weren't working on the day our client was injured. The other thing that's shocking and people don't know this is they don't have to have liability insurance. I cannot tell you how many times I've had prospective clients absolutely shocked to hear that a daycare can be licensed in the state of Georgia officially but yet not have to carry liability insurance. The only requirement, if they don't, is that the daycare is supposed to place in a conspicuous, whatever, however they interpret that, a conspicuous place at the daycare that they don't carry liability insurance. And so obviously they put a piece of eight by 11 or whatever the computer size paper is, you know, they tape it up somewhere that says, oh, by the way, 
we don't have liability insurance. How many parents do you think actually see that? No, no one's paying attention to that. And this is in this is in contrast to when you drive a motor vehicle, you are required to carry at least a minimum amount of insurance. The same requirement does not hold true with daycares. And when when clients come to you or come to me or come to whoever, and they've got these these cases, and then they ultimately can't recover from them um, because lack of insurance. It's just it's it's a terrible it's a terrible thing to have happen. Terrible for the kids that get injured at a daycare that that does not have liability insurance. You mentioned right from the start, and I think one thing that that without getting too much of the weeds of these cases, but it is important to know. It's like when something happens to a child at a daycare facility, who's got the responsibility to provide this? Um, notice to Bright from the Start so they can do their investigation. Does the facility have to do it? Does the family have to do it? How does that work? So if a child is injured at a daycare in Georgia and that injury requires medical attention, the daycare is obligated to self-report that to Bright from the Start. The reasons for that are if a kid falls on the playground and skins her knee and gets a Band-Aid, that need not be reported to the state. Kids fall and skim, skin their knees all the time. If an injury occurs at a daycare that requires medical attention, Bright from the start wants to know about it so that they can investigate. The family is under no obligation to report it. We obviously advise our clients to cooperate with Bright from the start when they're investigating. If, they're, if those two requirements happen and the facility chooses not to report, is there a punishment for them? Yes. So Bright from the start has the ability to do everything from uh, issue citations, which carry monetary fines, albeit for my liking, not, not sufficient to actually deter anybody. But they can issue monetary fines and citations up through revoking the license uh, of the daycare to operate in Georgia. And we actually have a case right now where there is a daycare facility that we are uh, in a lawsuit against that has a hearing before a state administrative judge in May because their conduct has been so bad within the last couple of years that Bright from the start is seeking to pull their license to do business in Georgia. Crazy. All right, so switching gears from specifically daycare cases to just how you handle cases just in general. Um, we've had lots of conversations with prior guests about insurance adjusters and defense counsel and, and the way that people choose to interact with them. I've watched you um, very successfully kind of work I won't say together, but work well with insurance adjusters, work well with opposing counsel, um, because the way you start off kind of the relationship, I think it's important for people to hear that it doesn't always have to be, you know, just complete anger and screaming and yelling. Like, what, 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 what is your approach? Well, I think that too many younger lawyers, and it's hard to believe that I've been practicing since 2002, which I guess at this point makes me an older lawyer, but... Too many younger lawyers on both sides, the plaintiff side and the defense side, uh, start off assuming that they need to fulfill these roles that they see on TV shows or, or, or movies, which is, you know, speaking in lawyer terms that nobody wants to hear, uh, using four syllable words when a one syllable word will do, and, you know, bowing up, uh, for lack of a more artful way to put it. Uh, people want to hear lawyers talk in a plain, easy to understand way. And lawyers want to deal with other lawyers and adjusters want to deal with lawyers who are nice and respectful until there's a reason not to be. And I have certainly had occasions where I have gotten to the point where with both opposing counsel 
and adjusters where there's reasons not to be nice anymore. But I think that when you are confident in your abilities to both file suit and pursue it through trial and jury verdict, that comes across in the way that you can respectfully treat people and say, hey, let's let's figure this out until we can't. And I think that from the very first conversation that you have or, or you know, someone has with, a, with an adjuster, we'll use that specifically, you can kind of lay the foundation and the, the groundwork for future conversations. So I, what I've heard you do is that first conversation, it's kind of important, right? You're jockeying for position, make sure they know that we know that what's up and, you know, but you'll, you'll say something like, they'll say, Mr. Goldner, how are you doing today? And if it's 10 o'clock in the morning, you'll say, I'd be doing better if I had a Bloody Mary. Something like that. Or if it's at one o'clock, you'd say, if I had a steak sandwich right now, I'd be better. And so what that does is they always give a chuckle. Ha, ha, ha. You know, you have a 30-second kind of back and forth about whatever it is that you said. And it kind of lightens the mood a little bit and takes some of the tension out. Yeah, I think disarming people um, and making your case and your firm memorable is important. Um when you make a joke about I'd be doing better if I had a Bloody Mary or, or something else, the adjuster or the opposing counsel are going to remember that because you were humorous or, you know, willing to talk about something other than just the case. And that, you know, I find that when people can talk as humans rather than, you know, putting on their specific title of adjuster and lawyer or opposing counsel, you know, business can get done that way. Yeah, and and that it carries on the conversation till the end when you're trying to get it resolved, and I just feel like at the end it's it's that much like more likely they're gonna go that extra little bit. I think so. Whatever yeah. it might be, and I also think that keeping constant contact with the adjuster is something that's important, right? You don't want to go months and months and months without giving them updates or telling what's going on. No, we we try to update the adjusters, particularly in our cases that are significant injury cases where treatment is ongoing. Um, because we want to be fair to the adjuster and let them document their file about the gravity of the situation and the ongoing treatment. And um, again, it's another way where the adjuster or the opposing counsel say, huh, that's the guy that, you know, calls me monthly and gives me an update on his client. And same thing with pushing a case to a lawsuit when it's needed, right? Unfortunately, that's what is required in a lot of these cases because they don't offer what's fair or you have to go through litigation to prove the case. But sitting on a case for months and months and months and not filing it or not taking depositions. It, it drives you and me both crazy when we see that happening with other people's stuff. It's maddening. You know, we'll get calls from other lawyers that want some advice and say, Hey, you know, I, you know, it's, it's April 12th of 2023. And they're like, I, I got this case in May of 2022 and I'm not sure what to do with it. And, and we're like, um, uh, you've had the case for 11 months and just been sitting on it. Like what's going on here? Uh, pushing it aggressively typically yields a better resolution. And so cases don't sit around my office. I certainly know they don't sit around your office. I've had lawyers comment to me on more than one occasion. They sort of jokingly asked me, is this the only case you have? And I said, well, no, but I'm glad you feel that way. Nothing makes me happier than when that sort of response is, is received back from defense attorneys. Like, Jesus, Josh, like enough of this. Like, is this, yeah. no, it's not all I'm doing, but it's really important and we're pushing it. We ain't sitting on it um, because they would prefer nothing more than a case to just linger, 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 linger. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, if I were hiring an injury lawyer, 
that would be one of the questions I would ask, which is how long do your cases take to close out on average? Now, obviously some cases that are clear liability and, you know, can be resolved in a car wreck case for, you know, the policy limits. Sometimes they don't take that long. Other cases that are incredibly complicated might take a couple years, particularly in the post COVID world where we've got a backlog of cases working their way through the courts. But, you know, a lot of the, uh, mass advertising lawyers once a case gets into their system you can kiss it goodbye yeah that's right um you look 25 still but you often joke that you've been practicing a long time and pushing 20 years what has andy goldner learned in the two decades of practicing law how much i don't know uh that would be piece one uh you know it's been a long time since since my class of 2002 from georgia graduated and um, in some ways, it feels like just yesterday. In some ways, it feels like it's been 22 or 23 years or whatever it's been. Um, so I've learned that every day or every week or every month, you, you learn something new that you didn't know. Um, I've learned the importance of, of specializing. Uh, you know, I've, I've increasingly realized over the years that lawyers truly are like doctors in the sense of, you know, you don't want... Uh, a back surgeon necessarily operating on your ears and vice versa. And with lawyers, and it's scary because a lot of prospective clients don't know this. Uh, you don't want someone handling a serious injury case that typically handles real estate law. So I feel like I've spent a long time refining my craft and, and, and you know, I, I tell clients all the time that call me with cases that I don't do. I say, look, I'm, hate talking myself out of business, but I'm good at what I do. And part of the reason for that is that I don't do a lot of stuff. Very well said. The practice of law has changed also in terms of the, the attire that's expected to be worn. Used to be shirt and tie, jackets, now we're much more casual. Um, back when your first defense firm jobs, you have to wear a tie there every day? 100%. Okay. Except on Fridays. So uh, I went, after I got my job, I went to the Brooks Brothers outlet in commerce directly from Athens. And I think I purchased two suits there. And I was so proud of those suits. They might as well have been $5,000 Armani, you know, Armani hand stitched uh, from the finest suit maker in Italy. What I'm interested in is how many ties you purchased and if you had any sort of reputation about, let's say, messing those ties up throughout the day. <laughs> uh, I had a few ties and uh, I'm a little bit of a spiller. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, it became so bad that uh, one of the attorneys uh, with whom I used to have lunch on a regular basis, there'd be a group of us, she, unbeknownst to me, began carrying a Tide pen for me. Um, ultimately, I just gave up and started doing the tie tuck. The tie tuck. In the yes. shirt. Yes. And you have to really balance, you know, how much of a clown do I look like at lunch with my tie tucked into my shirt versus, versus. how much of a clown am I going to look like with a piece of rigatoni hanging off my tie at the end of lunch. Is, is there truth to the rumor that much like the word Munson is now an, an, a descriptive term from King Kingpin, the word Goldner is a descriptive term for getting your tie dirty? I can't deny that. Um, it, you know, I, 
there was more than one tie that was ruined at a lunch uh, when I used to wear ties a lot. And you know what's interesting? Thank you, by the way, so much for bringing this up. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I, I fancied myself relatively coordinated and a, and, a, and a pretty good athlete back in my day. But, I mean, a piece of meat will come off my fork like I've never used tools before. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Is it a particular type of food you have a hard time going with? Or You mentioned rigatoni. Well, look, I mean, look, the bottom line is if I were an obstetrician, I would be the guy sued for dropping newborns, right? Like, I mean, that's just but what it is. But you shoot a basketball. So how do you, how do you reconcile those shoot two? shoot a basketball very well. I don't know. I really don't Sticking know. with the theme of your clothes, driving gloves. You got those as a gift one time, or do you use those? What's, what's the deal, driving gloves? Do you I still do, use I them? I do not use them. Uh, Brian Karen and a couple of his cult-like followers, uh, they like to give me prank gifts every birthday, uh, which have ranged from the funny and appropriate to the highly inappropriate and jail-worthy. And everywhere in between. And one year, I, I was gifted what I can only assume were knockoff pleather driving gloves. Um, I don't use them, but they are in my glove box just in case it gets cold. We, we mentioned Brian kind of messing with you all, you all messing with each other. Um, we brought a few a few different um, examples up, but we didn't bring up the time when you went to lunch with him, came back, couldn't find your car. Yeah, so I, I got a, a lunch invitation from Brian and uh, a couple other guys uh, to meet them at the tavern for lunch at Phipps uh, for my birthday, which I thought I should have known then that it was a setup because, you know, it was such a nice gesture. Like, we like to take you out for lunch for your birthday. Meet us at the tavern. You should have seen that a mile away. It was like a ninth green at nine happy Gilmore moment, <laughs> right. but I didn't see it coming because that's that's just me. And so uh, I, I go to the tavern, and I'm waiting like 10 or 15 minutes before Brian and the other guys show up. I thought they were late, traffic, Buckhead, possible shooting, whatever occurs in Buckhead. They show up. We have a perfectly nice lunch. I got the driving gloves as a, a gag gift, and then um, we go, and they said, oh, we're parked in the, in the deck. This is the same as day well. as driving gloves? All this happened at the same time? Same time. It was a banner day. Um, so – we walk out to the parking deck at, at uh, Phipps after we ate. And I, the first thing I saw was a car covered in, a, in a, a, a car condom. Can you say that on there? Car condom, it's, it is. And, and it was, it's in the parking deck, like fully covered. So I turned and I said, I, I looked at Brian. And I said, what kind of ass covers their car in a parking deck? And about 30 seconds later, I turned around. I said, you know, I'm pretty sure I parked on this level. I can't find my car. You're the ass. Turns out that he had found my car in the entire mall and covered it with a car. Of course he did. Of course he did. And what's worse Well, it's not much worse than that. I take the cover off. It took me another week or two after that. Uh, he had replaced my license plate, you know, cover. And it said my other car is a Porsche. He's toilet papered your Porsche. He stole your court, your, your Porsche one day and took it around. Yeah. My favorite thing of all, though, was the urinal cake. So we talked about that the last, the last sure podcast because that, that, that was marketing to its next level. So talk a little about that, and then we'll, then, then we'll move off of Yeah, that. I don't like to encourage him because he's he, you know I, I hate to admit it, and, and knowing Brian's attention span as you and I do. He won't still be listening. He probably hasn't gotten past minute three of yeah. this podcast. He ain't still listening. Don't so worry. he probably isn't listening to this because um, he is a little bit of an evil genius with pranks. But, yeah, we were at a uh, – 
I think it was before you became a plaintiff's lawyer. We were at the Georgia Trial Lawyers Auto Torch Seminar in Amelia Island. And uh, most of the seminar went to this happy hour at this off-site bar and restaurant. And uh, someone came up to me about halfway through the evening and said, hey, Goldner, that's really cool marketing that you're doing. <clears throat> well, I assumed he had seen my website or some speech I had given at a CLE. And I said, thanks, buddy. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's working. I'm sure, I probably I had had a few drinks at that point. I'm sure I shot him like an air gun or two, <laughs> you know, pistol Yosemite Sam style. Um, another guy came up and said the same thing. Hey, man, that's a good idea. Good marketing. I'm like, hey, wow. What it's I'm working. doing really paying off with this website. Goldner on fire. Well, unfortunately for both um, my reputation and my psyche, about 15 minutes after the second guy complimented me, I went to the bathroom. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but generally when I'm, I'm in the bathroom, I'm, I'm kind of zoning out, not, not really paying attention. So I'm at the urinal doing what I do. And I look down, and as it turns out, I'm peeing on my own face. And Josh, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of peeing on your own face, but it's not, it's not that great. No, so, no. And everybody else has been peeing on your face for the last hour. So as it turns out, thanks to your boy, Brian Karen. He had had urinal cakes with my face made up on them and my office phone number. Which, by the way, he still has those. As do I. Yeah. They're, 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 they're not out of circulation. So yeah. Who knows? Maybe you turn around sometime soon. And uh, So, you know, what do you do at that point, right? Because I'll tell you what I'm not doing. I'm not putting my hands in there no. and throwing them away. So for all I know, they're still at this bar. How many bathrooms did this take up? Just one or do we even know? No, there were a lot of urinal cakes. Well, I mean, in the particular bathroom, multiple urinals, yes. but different ba different bathrooms, the location. To be honest with you, Josh, I was so traumatized, I don't really remember. Let me tell you this. One urinal cake with your face on it is one too many. Zero, zero is a better number. <laughs> zero is a better number. Uh, that's good stuff, man. Well, look, we just zigzag through uh, master stuff, legal stuff, urinal cakes. I mean, is there anything that we can't do? I'm truly the chameleon of the podcast. So we'll and a handsome one at that. I tell you what, I will say that uh, I appreciated you checking your hair before this podcast started. And I'd yeah. remind you that much like I had in, in, in remind Brian, this is audio only. Listen, with my family history and my age, every day that a hair remains on my head is a damn good day. And so, you know, I'm not going to apologize one second for that. I'm not asking you to apologize. Yeah. I just I just note for the record that... Uh, you had to make sure that your hair looked good. You do look good, man. The master's gear fits very nicely. Um, we're enjoying the bourbon, so yeah. good stuff, man. Thank you for traveling all the way from your office here today. This was great. I'll submit the mileage reimbursement at the end of the day. <laughs> what is the rate? 65 and a half cents or so? Good God. Too much. All right, guys. Thank you all for listening. Um, episode two with Goldner was great. I think it was 27 or so was the um, was a, was a round table with, uh, with all the other paralegals. And then this one. So that sounds right. If you haven't listened to those two, go back and listen to it. Give them some more downloads. Got to catch Marshall Darneal. My, my man Marshall Darneal you know, is on let, fire. Let, let me close by saying that something that bothered me about Marshall's podcast, he was so informative, such a smart guy, so many amazing life experiences. But really what overshadowed the entirety of the podcast was his obsession with how many downloads he was going to get. Obsessed. And so all I can say is, give me more downloads than he has. <laughs> he, his downloads, I mean, so Kessler has been sleeping on the lead for over a year. Marshall is going to catch him, man. I mean, Marshall's right there. Well, as I've told you before, the PED situation, which is performance-enhancing downloads, I reject all statistics because when Brian and I first went on episode two, you probably had a quarter of your listenership as you do now. We will find out in the next seven days, man. Right? I mean, now it's apples to apples. 
listen, I'm just happy that everybody finds this discussion informative, perhaps takes a nugget or two, but please give me more downloads than Marshall. <laughs> more downloads than Marshall. Listen, my man, download for him. Uh, and leave him a review, comment, like, share, all that good stuff. Go to sportsstorts.com for prior episodes. Look for Andy's and uh, other ones that will um, get your attention. Shane Lazenby, friend of yours, would like to listen to. Great friend listen of mine, that great one. lawyer. And um, yeah, as always, everybody, thanks for listening. Keep chopping. Appreciate you, Goldner. <laughs>